0: The Beer EDU Podcast, episode 127, Race, Schools, and White Educators. Welcome to the Beer EDU Podcast, the podcast for educators that love to learn and share ideas with fellow educators over beers with your hosts, Kyle Anderson and Ben Dixon. Hey how are Ben, you how you guys, doing, buddy?
1: I am good. This is another episode of the Beer Edu podcast. This is
0: episode 0127. Correct. <laughs> I'm zero. still going to
1: add the zero on.
0: Yeah, you might as well. You did it for the first hundred episodes. Yeah. You might as well keep doing it. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so. What- we should introduce ourselves. We we Gosh. should do that because you that's never know. There might be a first timer listening here. So true. that's true. so I will go first then. So I am Kyle Anderson. I am a special ed teacher in Las Vegas, Nevada. You can follow me on Twitter at Anderson EdTech. I'm also on Instagram at the same handle. I'm on Untapped. Um, if you've heard of that app before, that is also Anderson Anderson EdTech. And then my Peloton name is Anderson EdTech. And I have a blog called (laughs) andersonedtech.net. And then I have a book titled To the Edge, Success and Failures Through Risk-Taking. That's available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and then also through my publisher, Edumatch Publishing. And Ben, you are? Ben Dixon. I am a principal in Northern Nevada
1: um, Elementary School. And you can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Untapped at BDixonNV. Wow, I, I have Strava. I don't use Peloton, but I use Strava, so you could, I guess my Strava is on there. I think it's the same thing, actually. Oh, man. So Yeah,
0: so yeah, whatever. So, it's a fitness app of sorts, so there.
1: Yes, yes. So if this is the beer to you, um, we probably should start with some beers. So Kyle, what do you have?
0: So I have something a little different tonight. Um, I have a mead, which um, we haven't talked about the mead in a while, which um, sometimes are called honey beers or called honey wine sometimes, right. but... It is a honey-based alcohol, and um, it's called Valkyrie's Choice Craft Mead, and it is okay. made by a company called Groenfeld. I'm trying to cool. find where this place is at. It is in Vermont. So, um, so it is an East Coast one, so 6.9% ABV. Uh, meads do not have hops added, so it is zero IBU. Nope. Um, it's smooth. It's a little dry. It's got a slight twinge, I guess if that's a word, of sweetness, but not a lot. So... Nice, easy drinker. I'm not sure if I'd call it a lawnmower beer, but, uh, you know, something that's easy going, especially when it's warm, and it is starting to get warmer here in Las Vegas. Uh, I believe today is in the high 80s, so it is starting to warm up a little bit. Um, But um, you have something that, well, surprise, I I think you have an IPA.
1: No, so, well, it's okay, yeah, so it's Sierra Nevada, there's a shocker, and it's an IPA, but it's the big little thing IPA, and I, like, went through, and I never had okay, I've had it, but I've never checked in on untapped with it. And it is a, it's a 9% ABV, 45 IBU. So it is definitely, it's bigger than the hazy little thing IPA. Um, You know, it is, it is full hops. I mean, not, this is not a lawnmower beer. Um, So yeah, I, I had one uh, when we're recording this, I just got back this weekend. My son moved to San Francisco so as part of the, uh, the payment for me moving him, uh, we went to a baseball game, went to a Giants game, and I had it there. And I, I'm shocked that I'd never had this one. So, no, yeah, it was it's solid. It's
0: oh, I thought argument. you were about to say he paid you in beer. Like when you used to help people move, no. you got paid in beer. I thought <laughs> no. your son paid you in beer.
1: No, I paid for the tickets and the food, my wife and I, and the beer. And I believe we bought him
0: groceries. So,
1: hey, you know. He's, yeah, adulting well,
0: he's moving into a new city on his own. He's, he needs
1: a he's living in a new place and he has a two bedroom. So trust me, I, I'm I'm going to get paid back. I'm not concerned about it. So yeah,
0: there we are. You don't are. have to pay for a hotel in San Francisco anymore.
1: Nope. That's all I really care. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> he's so, he's adulting. So it's all good.
0: There you go. So normally this is where we yes. introduce a guest, but we actually have not one, not two. We have three, three guests joining us for this episode here. So really excited about this one here. So we're going to introduce Dr. Heather Case, Charles Kamick, and Reginald Ryder, and welcome them to the Beer Review Podcast. So I don't know how we want to do this, but all three of you, welcome. Yes, thank you.
2: <laughs> thank um, you for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. Really appreciate you, being, uh, you uh, following up with us. That was that was nice, and I'm definitely glad we got a chance to do this. Yeah, yeah wonderful sure. to
3: be here. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so
0: um, so a little background um Ben is obviously aware of this but listeners are not right. so I went to Washington DC back in March and went to the dream deferred conference put on by college board and I went to a session right. um, that uh, I, the the name the, the whole name of the session that I'm drawing a blank on right now but essentially was like um like race for like white educators something along those lines um, and we'll get into that more because uh, I want to talk more about that session because it was an incredible session and After the session was done, I went up to the presenters, Heather, Reginald and Charles, and said, love the session. This was incredible. I need to talk more about this. So um, I would love to have you come on the show. And well, here we are a couple months later. So uh, that's the background story of how this all kind of came together right now. So. Uh, so I guess what we'll do then is we'll give each of you an opportunity to tell a little bit about yourself, like where what you do in education, uh, how you kind of got there. And uh, Heather, we're going to go ahead and start with you. How about you, tell, give us a little life story about Heather.
3: <laughs> okay, well, let me uh, start by saying Ben and I have a lot more in common than I realized because I <laughs> just helped my daughter, my uh, trying to adulting daughter, move <laughs> from um, one- Apartment in Boston to a different apartment in Boston where oh, wow. she's, um, she just finished her first year of graduate school at Tufts. So um, super exciting time for her. But I didn't get paid, so like I think I need to well, call in that that you do debt there. Yeah, and so. and,
1: and I feel you because I have a, my daughter's going to graduate school in in Brooklyn in New York, and I'm like I don't even at that point as a parent. And you're on the West Coast, you're like okay, good luck. I hope everything works out. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. So um, I said, this is the last time I move you. You are 24 now. So (laughs) mom does not come to help move after this time. So (laughs) done. Um, So yeah. So my name is Heather Case and I have been primarily working as a school counselor, uh, worked as a school counselor for over 20 years, I have worked in a large urban public school and I also worked in an independent day school. And as I saw the discrepancy between the support that was available for students in the urban public school compared to their well resourced peers who attended the independent school, um, I started to say, I should do something about this. So I ultimately uh, attended USC Fight On for any Trojans out there. Um and uh, at the Rossier School of Education, and I completed an EDD. And the focus of my dissertation was to compare student experiences. So there's a lot of data about what counselors think about how the whole process is going, but there isn't a lot of data where um, researchers have asked the students, "What do you think?" So I um, compared the students perceptions of their experiences in the college application and transition process um, and had a group of his students who met the criteria to be um, identified as historically underserved students and compared them to their predominantly white and well-resourced peers and the differences were drastic and um, so now i currently teach in the cal state university system and I teach in um, an advanced educational studies program where I'm helping um, prepare the next generation of school counselors.
0: Excellent. So I already have a bunch of questions, but uh, I wanna give the others an opportunity to say a little bit about themselves as well. So Charles, why don't we have you go next? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
4: Yes, thank you again, avin and Kyle, for having us. Um, my name is Charles Kammack. I am. Uh, an associate director of admission at the University of Miami. Um, I've been at uh, the U for actually going into my, this next school year will be my eighth school year. Um, And I got into higher ed primarily from the work that I was doing in undergrad um, and just realizing how fulfilling it was uh, in the roles, whether it be working in student life or in residential life. And that kind of pivoted to me doing graduate studies within higher ed, uh, and then I've been at UM ever since um, completing those studies. My lens in terms of our team here uh, comes from being in, at this point, I'd say hundreds, probably close to thousands of schools um, from a recruitment standpoint and being able to uh, see uh, the differences uh, in terms of support that Heather mentioned um, but also in the way that we recruit students as well, we've had sort of an evolution um, in the way that we have um, been able to kind of craft our recruitment processes and I've been able to be a, a part of that um, and a lot of that based upon again, um, sort of the, the the varying levels across the country and kind of the landscape in terms of resources and, and opportunities, um, specifically in K through 12 systems and how that translates to their opportunities within uh, higher education. So. Um yeah, I'm just excited to to be here. Also say, I'm on Strava as well. Been um huge fan trying to get back out. I'm, I'm here in Chicago, so it's super cold, but I'm excited to have my first um bike planned hopefully this nice. Monday. So, uh yeah, to get back on get back on the road. Um for sure. right on. <laughs> yeah, growing up in the Midwest, I know how it is. I mean, we're recording this in
0: early May, which early May in the Midwest, it could be beautiful in the low 80s or you could still get snow flying and from what I've been hearing coming out of my hometown in Michigan, it, there's still days of like 40 and snow, and I'm like, yeah, do not miss that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, now, Reginald, you are also in a place where the weather can be very fickle. Um, so, why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit of your story, please?
2: Sure, will. Thank you, uh, I, Kyle and Benpo, for uh, having me. So, I'm Reginald Ryder. I am uh, the uh, founder of Thriving Life Coaching. Uh, it is a academic readiness and life coaching um, service uh, that I provide for uh, college students and high school students. Uh, I feel like actually between Heather and Charles, between their kind of, kind of college counseling and their admissions work, and I've done uh, a, a little bit of both, I've uh, kind of lived in kind of all those worlds and circles in some respects, and I'll, I'll explain. Um, so I'm from the Midwest as well, Kyle, I'm from uh, Indiana, and so I can definitely relate to the weather. Uh, not in Indiana, but in other places that I've lived, I've actually seen snow in New York on Mother's Day. So anything's possible for, for what it's worth. Um, but I went to Ball State University uh, undergrad and was an RA, much like you, know, you talked about Charles, uh, student life and the, and the like. Um, and through that actually got my first job uh, out of school in the admissions office. And as a first-gen student, I remember very vividly the phone call that I got from my admissions, or an admiss- admissions ambassador—not admissions person, but admissions ambassador—asking me what I needed to know about the college or university that I was potentially going to go to. I'd only applied to one school, and that was pretty much it. Got in, and I went. But what I knew about it uh, in any shape, form, or fashion was little to nothing. So when I graduated from from school and I started working in the admissions office as a first-gen student, I thought, the last thing I want to do is have someone have the kind of experience I had going into an admissions process and then ultimately into into school because that transition was pretty pretty steep in a lot of respects. Um, You know, fortunately, I didn't do horrible as a student, and so that's not necessarily it, but to say that I wasn't at my full potential, I could easily say that. Um, So from there, I worked in, I've worked in several different admissions uh, offices and student services roles for the last, uh, I guess I'd say 30 years now, it's hard to believe, but it's been 30 years. Uh, and in doing so, I've been on the other side of the coin. So the students come in, or they you know, spend all this money to kind of get in, but then they don't know what they're doing when they get there. And so my role was to basically kind of help them through that process. And so in shepherding students in that way, in that manner, Aside so from my own anecdotes and my own um, situations and processes, I learned how to kind of do that. And so I kind of planted that seed with other students. And so it kind of resonated. I went back to school and got my master's at uh, James Madison University and their college student personnel administration and been working kind of ever since. So, um, not to belabor it, but the, the schools that I worked at have been uh, Ball State University, Butler University, and in Indianapolis. Uh, Allegheny College in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Cornell University in uh, Ithaca, New York, and then I did a K through K-12 kind of stint um, outside of that. I currently work in uh, with a ed tech company, and we partner, ironically enough, with USC, which is how I met Heather. Um, I was her student success okay. advisor um, as she... Um, went through the the three-year program at USC and uh, in the process of doing that kind of work I also am an adjunct faculty member at Northern Virginia Community College so I'm kind of bringing all these skills together in one respect or another Um, but what I do basically is help students figure out the transition so that they can do it as productively as they possibly can with the return on investments from parents and scholarships and other things as well and Hopefully, uh, carry those same skills into, you know, career and adulting, as I guess as we were as we're calling it uh, this this past uh, few minutes or so. Um, so that's 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 my background. Oh, and last thing I will say is that, um, or two things. One, it it led to writing a book about the whole experience of what a student goes through. The name of the book is called Pass, "Passing the Baton." A guide and memoir of college success. So it's my story and kind of anecdotally, my helping students do the very thing that I didn't know how to do. Um, and I don't think anybody else mentioned it, but I uh, like, there's, a, I'm a Blue Moon fan. So Blue Moon is my beer of choice, if you will. I don't have one right now, but I'll, I'll probably get one after this is all said and done. But I'm also, I appreciate you saying, uh, Kyle, that you're a Honey fan because there's a brew in Rochester, New York. It's called Honey Brown beer i think honey brown blue beer or honey brown brew or something like that i have had it It it's great
0: yes yes i remember having that in college yes i haven't had one in a long time so i haven't um, either
2: i haven't either i I was looking for i was looking around it in this like general area and i haven't seen one yet so if i if i ever do um i I may
0: have to go to my local big box um beer and liquor retailer and see if i can find it now because i haven't even i haven't heard that one in a while let alone had it so thank you for bringing back that memory so
2: (laughs) there you go yeah
0: so, well, I, I love all three of your stories. So, like, I mean, I, yeah, having each of you on your own on an episode would be absolutely incredible as well, because I just, I love all of your backgrounds and where you're coming from, and then like how you kind of Voltron this together in this team <sighs> that you have now, where I, and I can already tell, like, just, like how each of you can play off of each other just based on your experiences, not only as students, but then also in in the roles that you're in now. I mean, uh, Reginald, with the work that you're doing, helping kids transition into school through Mm -hmm. that admissions process, then Charles, with your experience just working as an admissions officer, essentially, and then uh, then your experience, Heather, as a school counselor, and then now what you're doing, just like like they're solely – connections i already see i mean we, we've only been talking for a few minutes so um again going back to really how we connected was at the right. conference so um the the session um and one of you if you could just refresh my memory as to the title of the of the uh session that we went to so i remember the content i just can't remember the title yeah, and that's my question. I'm like, yeah, what is the the because
1: I wasn't there and not, I missed out, but I would love to hear like like that piece. And then like, how did you come together? Like, what was your thought process into to presenting that to to a wider wider group of people?
3: Yeah. So the title of the session was "How White Educators Can Support Historically Underserved Students." So um, I find that. Um, You know, I personally have had to do a lot of work. Um, So if you're not watching the video and you're just listening, I'm white. And um, so that is something that I've really had to work at um, and have really relied on a lot of my friends of color and fellow educators of color to help um, point me in the direction of resources and other things. Um, that I can use to grow personally and to develop a better understanding of what the lived experiences of historically underserved students might be. Um, and so i I feel like we go to conferences all the time and and we're just too afraid to to speak it, to talk about it, and say, Here's some things in my experience that I've done well. Here are some blunders, hopefully you can avoid. And let's just really dig deep in this. Um, But I also don't feel like that's something that I should ever be presenting by myself or with just other white people. So I reached out to my friends, Charles and Reginald, and said, hey, I'm kind of thinking about this. What do you think? Would you be willing to come alongside me and help me do this? And they both immediately, without hesitation, were like, "Um, I'm in. So, um, So I'm really grateful that I can, that I have friends that I can reach out to and say, it seems to me like this is a need, what do you all think? And they were like, yeah, it's a need. (laughs) So, but I'll let them speak about, you know, their process as well.
4: Yeah, I'll just add, um, first of all, I I think Dr. Case, Heather is definitely um, not only sincere, not only in her invitation to myself and Reginald, but um, I know of things that she's done just in her own personal life um, to, to be an advocate and I think that that, for me, is what what sold me um, about her, her sort of genuine advocacy. And I think my journey to even being a part of the team and her her tapping me, I will say, as a black man, for those of you who are listening who haven't picked up on my voice, um, I think that it is incredibly important for us also to come alongside um, white educators as well. Now, there's a difference between the responsibility right? And um, also um, sort of your own personal passions and the things that you've worked through. I can be very transparent and say that in my seven years um, at UM, I have gone through a total evolution where I did not even understand the systemic aspects of the educational system that would disadvantage uh, students of color as a student of color, right? And so it's um, kind of grappling with my own experiences and being able to understand and some of which I was able to do with Heather because I graduated from um, her or one of the schools that she she worked at. And so um, being able to unpack some of those experiences and, and sort of understand it now as um, an adult but also as a professional in this field. Um, and so it was truly kind of a cathartic experience for me to kind of come full circle and be a part of the presentation. Um, because like you said, Kyle, I've been able to, yes, all our stories sort of mixed in, in terms of the puzzle, but even for me personally, I've sat on many different sides of it now at this point to be able to see um, not only where I fit, but also where I maybe have been one of those students who was disadvantaged in the process. So um, that's kind of how, yeah, what I brought to the the, the presentation. And
2: and I think what I would say is that, I think given the kinds of roles that I've had and roles that I've worked in and through, I almost feel like in some respects I coach and I support students in, I think it's fair to say in a way that I wasn't necessarily treated myself. Um, And not that what I got was horrible, but what I got, wasn't the kind of support that I feel like I, um, that I offer. So uh, much uh, like we've all mentioned, like I mentioned uh, at least individually. Anyway, I'm an African American male. Um, I didn't come from a disadvantaged background because my father was in the Air Force, and so the military, you know, allows you a certain a certain amount of access to resources. But access and um, you know inclusion in whatever respect, you know, those two things aren't necessarily, you know, because people are people and they come from different walks of life and different, uh, through different experiences and see life through a dis- different prism. So I felt like the thing that when Heather first mentioned this idea to me, I was definitely on board because I kind of was kind of dappling with the whole process of presenting in one respect, but it was really about, I think attempting and i think we did i I thought we did a pretty good job of it of conveying the the necessity for the connection and the necessity for the relationship and so clearly heather in um, uh, in her role um much you know much to what i didn't know but clearly can see you know was very committed to that and so she 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 counsels like she coaches like she, you know, so it's very much ingrained in kind of who she is. And so to me, the the piece that I kind of brought to this is that all of all of the various roles that I've been in, they've really been about relationship. They've really been about a relationship with a person. And then that person kind of um, helping and shepherding and coaching and you know, prodding in all the ways that you need to in order to make sure that they, you know, get what they need, even if they don't know what it is that they need. And so, um, you know, I felt privileged and um, fortunate, you know, to be able to offer, you know, that that piece to the puzzle. Um, clearly, being able to see it through all the prisms through which, you know, they've experienced, uh, you know, their own individual lives.
1: So, so kind of like thinking about this, and as someone who didn't attend your session, I, I just I'm curious. So do you see like when kids are are going through this process or, or young adults and they move into that, like, I feel like, I feel like coming from a public education background, Kyle works in a high school, I work in elementary and thinking about your role, Heather, as a, as a counselor, we support kids, we support kids. And then do you see like, okay, now you're going to college and good luck. And I mean, Charles and, and Reginald, you're there to kind of support those students as they go through, but do you see that? that is there a, is there a lack of support within schools or is that something that maybe students don't realize they have access to?
3: If you're talking from the K-12 side, I think, um, yeah, so I left public education because I was, it was, you know, as many decisions are, it was multifaceted, but I remember in November of the year that I left, I was, um, you know, so November one's a big deadline, right? And it was like, I think right. it was Halloween, you know, it was October 31st. I'm trying to get letters done. And my mm-hmm. principal saw me sitting at my office and the lunch, the bell for lunch had just rung. And he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, can you just give me two minutes? I just need to finish this letter. Um, and I, I promise I'll go to lunch duty. I promise. Cause I had lunch duty mm-hmm. every day. And um, he said, letter for what? And I said, well, it's for an early decision application. Um, Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what? The government does not pay us on how many students go to college. The government pays us on how many students actually graduate from high school. So I need you to be on lunch duty so that students don't get in a fight and get expelled. And and so if you're going to write letters of recommendation, you need to do that on your own time. Whoa. So I left and went and did my lunch duty <laughs> and on my own time that night, I got the letter wow. done, but I came home that night and told my husband, I will fulfill my commitment for this year. I I'll, I, you know, I'll fulfill right. my contract, but I'm not going back there. I will work as a barista at Starbucks before I right. am complicit with a process that damages students. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that it's, and the first year I was there, I was responsible for 750 students. Like I, wow. I, there's no way when relationships right. are so important, there's no way right. you can have a relationship with 750 kids. That's meaningful. You know, I think of how many kids had the grades to go to college, but no one had ever talked to them about it. No one in their home knew right. about that. And so they just never applied because I couldn't find them because I couldn't get mm-hmm. to them. Right. Because I was so busy trying to make sure the kids at the bottom who didn't have enough credits to graduate were getting all the notices to their parents so that they couldn't like come back on the school. Um, So I think in public schools and this is not to disparage public counselors, like I was a public school counselor for years. Right. There's just you know, when you ask uh, the um, American School Counselor Association recommends 250 to one ratio. Right. There's only two states in the United States that overall maintain 250 to one ratios. Most I mean, in some states are as high as 900. Right. So, no, um, in independent schools, I think there's some support and transition. I had a lot of my students would come back and they'd reach out to me if they had questions and they knew I was still available. Um, so that was amazing but between my research and my own experience um, I find that students don't have access to the support they need um, as they apply and as they transition so um, I mentioned this in the session that I have written a, a curriculum that's all online for ninth through 12th grade to help students understand what's required to apply to college understand you know all the different aspects and even though a lot of people have told me I'm crazy, the curriculum I'm releasing it one grade level at a time till the end of the summer when all four years will be done, and it's it's free, because I, knowing what I know from my research, I don't know how I can hold on to that and not just share it as widely and um, as purposefully as possible, because a lot of kids don't, and so it's not to replace their counselor; it's just to provide to kind of fill the holes. Where kids are getting lost, um, yeah.
0: So I'm surprised that after you finished that letter, that you didn't write your own letter of resignation right then and there. Because yeah. that, that was the first thing I went through my mind when you when I heard you say that. So, um, so you know, your experience seeing that kind of in the K twelve almost more more than nine twelve preparing them for school. Now, Reginald, y- your story was you did you weren't supported in that way and you knew next to nothing going in as a first gen college student. So, um, you know, not, not to age you by any means or anything, but you went to college a few years ago, how much is it, are, do you see students a little bit more prepared now? Or do you still kind of see a lot of students that just aren't really ready for it because of maybe the first gen aspect or because like Heather was saying, the lack of support in schools because there just aren't enough counselors. So what, what do you
2: kind of see now in that? You know, it's interesting. I I I almost see it as a kind of a a, a meshed, mm-hmm. a, a meshed net of kind of you know the situation that they're in. I think there are you know there are not enough counselors for enough students to be able to for them to feel and get the you know the the um, the love and support that they need. You know, my the motto of my uh, of uh, thriving life coaching is every student needs a little TLC. And <clears throat> I can honestly say that, you know, I don't feel like that's necessarily the case, even in the case, and this is at the doctorate level, that the students I support are at the doctorate level that I do in my, in my current role, I had a caseload of probably between 175 and 200. And so while that may seem like a lot, the, they are also at an age, quote unquote, where they're, you know, pretty functional for what it's worth. And so it's not as it's not as taxing it's still you know you run through the paces and do all the things that you need to do but when i you know take that same prism and apply that to you know what uh, what the equivalent would be for you know a high school or you know k uh, k through 12 or even 9 through 12. um, you know it's it's insurmountable maybe that's the best way to put it and so unless your parents went to school or unless someone has really like just pulled you, you know, and kind of yanked you to the side and said, "Hey, here's a timeout, and here's all the things you need to know before you go," or even when you go, and you're still gonna experience X, Y, and Z in some shape or, or fashion. I don't think that's really happening. I know that when I, and I, I don't, I don't consider myself a smart person, but I consider myself just you know to be uh, know enough to be able to do the right thing at the right time. When I went in K through 12 world, I I actually started teaching an academic readiness class to ninth graders and I started teaching and then I did a kind of a college transition for seniors. I would honestly say in some respects, um, maybe in ways that I know, but maybe in ways that I don't know, I think they ate it up because no one was really teaching in this. So I really just took what I knew from what the college experience was like and said, Pardon me. As a ninth grader, this is the things you need to start doing. You need to lay the foundation now with this. And by the time you got to be a senior, it's like, okay, you, you know, the it's May fourth, so you've made your decision. You know, this is where you're going. These are the things that you should think about. These are the types of dilemmas, or types of strategies, or types of uh, uh, approaches for your own advocacy, because you know. Mr. Anderson's not going to be there, you know. Mr. Dixon's not going to be there to tell you how to do A, B, and C, and your parents won't either. So, you know, to me, the newfound freedom when students get to their academic environment, um, coupled with kind of everything else that goes on or has the ability to go on at a, at a college campus, um, you know, that's when you get lost in the sauce and have the ability to fall through the cracks, and then you're looking at either transferring or you know you're you can't get into the school that you want to get into cuz you know your school may have prereqs and things that you need to complete by a certain time in order to be able to do those things it's i'm not sure quite what the silver bullet is but you know my my role and the role I kind of see myself in in that respect is doing what i can to kind of soften the blow of what a transition looks like because you're spending 40, 50, 60. My friend and I were looking the other day at the schools and right. we were looking at you know, how many, what what the cost of school is and what it was when I went to school versus what it is right now. Oh, wow. oh my God, no way.
1: That is very true.
2: So you better get your money's worth, you know, not at some point from the jump.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and I think back and- you know, obviously a different experience as a white male compared to the two of you gentlemen. Um, there's stuff that I didn't know going, I mean, I'm a senior in high school. I'm getting recruited to play football. And one of the one of the uh, schools offers me, you know, some money or whatever we want. To, we want to do a visit, whatever. Um, but you need to go through NCAA Clearinghouse. I'm, wait, what is that? Here I am, middle of my senior year. I have no idea what NCAA Clearinghouse is. I mean, and it's simple. All it is, is like, you just need to meet these requirements. And for the most part, anybody that graduates from high school is going to meet those requirements. But there is sometimes that extra math course or an extra science course you got to do. But again, I was middle of my senior year by the time I knew that in the process of applying to schools and being recruited and everything. So now, Charles, I'm sure you have conversations like this with students when you're working when you go to a school and work with students to to, to recruit them to come to the U, um, you know, speaking of football and everything, very storied football school there. So, uh, so like, what what kind of experiences are you seeing, or like like the things that are coming up from the high schools that you're working with?
4: Yeah, no, that's a great it's a great question. I think a couple of things. So we are I'm privileged to work at a um, top fifty institution. Um, and so there are um, a certain caliber of student that I interact with, or again, have the privilege to interact with, um, that has, whether it be means or those support systems. Case in point, I would say every independent school in the United States, uh, every student within that school, the counselors within that school, are aware of the University of Miami. Right, at a base level. They might not know what is offered, but they are aware of the institution. Compare that, compare contrast with the public school. Even for me, who came from Fort Wayne, Indiana, University of Miami was not even on my radar, right? Um, and I'm just using that as an example of knowledge. Knowledge is power. And so I'll have a lot of conversations with students specifically within public schools where, again, to the point that Heather and Reginald are making, it's a numbers game. And so the research that they're doing is primarily going to be on their own, if at all. Um, And so what a counselor does when the ratio is correct is they're able to introduce them to schools like the University of Miami much sooner in the process, right? And so it makes it a lot easier than the mad scramble. I just came, you know, May 1st was just moments ago, um, and I was having students who we're having a mad scramble just for the deposit because there were just things that they didn't know about whether it be for their financial aid package or um just the app process in general right and so that angst more often than not those students that have that mad scramble are the students that we're referring to who maybe don't have the, the support systems because of that numbers game right and it's a, of no fault of the student at all you know i had a former mentor of mine who said charles Um, in any aspect of education, remember this one thing, it is never the fault of the students what zip code they were born into. They have no control over that, right? Um, You had no control over the zip code, however good or bad it was, right? All you can do is do the best within where you are. And so I think of it in the same way in the recruitment process. And I I think we've gotten a lot better, truthfully, um, if there is a positive to come out of the pandemic, and I know that you all are working again on the K through 12 side, I think there has been a sensitivity, an immediate sensitivity to some of those discrepancies um, that hopefully will carry on beyond. Um, the test optional piece is huge, opening up uh, opportunities for students of all backgrounds to have more of an equitable opportunity uh, in the app process. Uh, The second piece that even the playing field for communication, so not every student can come in person to campus. That was an unrealistic expectation to begin with, but now everyone has a virtual visit, right? Everyone has a virtual information session. So these are things that, again, help to not fix, but can help be anecdotes to uh, that numbers game issue that we see with, with the counselor. So those are some of the things that I've seen um, on, on my side. And that made me hopeful for us on sort of this higher ed side to be able to bridge the gap for a numbers game that, not to look on the dark side of things, the things that you know Dr. Case are doing are incredible, but that numbers game is not going to change overnight, right? And so I think that there are other methods that have to be utilized, specifically us as higher ed professionals to help bridge some of those gaps for sure.
3: Yeah, and I would say, um, and this research was done pre-pandemic, but one of the articles that I used a lot in my research, like the lit review, was written by Hawkesbury and Avery. And I don't remember the exact title of the article, but essentially it said that highly, particularly highly selective schools, they're all like, there aren't enough qualified underserved students to fill our, you know, to, to really make a difference. But what this research found is there's tons of them, tons of them, but they tend to go to the same, they all all the schools tend to rush to the same lamppost, if you will, and stand under the lamppost. And anybody who's not standing right under the lamppost, they don't see. Um and, and again, it's not to to criticize a higher ed. You know, again, when you're an admissions person and you're traveling day after day after day, and you're like, I have 15 schools to see in 24 hours, you know, like, how does that actually work or help? Um, And I do think, um, I remember at this, what was my youngest daughter applied to a highly selective liberal arts school in the south. And at the time we lived in Indiana, it was a long, it was a long ways away, right? And she applied early action. And it was a school that probably would have fit her very well. But the school said, "Um, if you don't come to visit our campus, we're not even going to consider your application. And I was like, "Okay, Yeah, I mean, ridiculous, right? And um, But also, they assumed certain things about my own children. They went to the school where I worked. I was a school counselor. My husband worked in education. You know, so they saw the name of the school. And sometimes even that, you know, like, dude, we don't have that kind of money. Like, we're not paying full tuition. I get a faculty discount and, you know, we're scraping together the part that we do have to pay. So to just say, well, if you can't come visit us, then we're not going to consider your application. Good luck diversifying your student population then.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, well, so the, I guess that leads me to, so you, your research, sounds like, yes, like, like pre-pandemic, and then we've all talked about kind of some of these changes. Do you see, what are some positives that you see? And it might not just be because of the pandemic, but our, our schools, what are some things schools are doing, you know, to, to move that to where they are becoming more inclusive and more and, and getting more kids from underserved communities into their schools?
3: Well, from the high school side, um, I think Charles mentioned one of the big ones is the test optional policy. We know that the the tests heavily favor white middle class, upper middle class males, right? And so I would often, when I would write letters of recommendation, um, SAT did, I don't know if you can still find them and, and especially with test optional now, maybe not, but they used to have, um, standardization tables based on race um, and gender. So for my African-American male students, they might have a score and you just look at it and you think you're comparing apples to apples, but you're not. And so I would say this student's score actually places them at the 95th percentile for African-American male students taking this test. Like I would put that in their letter of recommendation because a lot of I think a lot of people on the college side don't even know that, right? Like, I mean, some of them do, but some of them don't. You never know which one's going to be reading it and who's going to know it and who's not. Um, But that score might place them at the 75th percentile overall, like just the, you know. And so if it's a school that required those test scores, if I didn't put that in their letter, I knew there was no way they were even going to be looked at, right? Because they didn't hit that cut score. so getting rid of those tests completely, I think has done wonders, you know, because students from historically underserved populations are lucky if they take the test once. They don't have test prep. They, you know, they're not like their peers who start taking it in 10th or 11th grade and take it six times to get the score they want or need. They're like, the SAT what? I have to take the SAT? What is that? You know, so. um I hope, I'm hopeful that colleges and universities will continue to have the test optional policy. However, unfortunately, some of them, it's test optional for admissions, but their scholarships are still based on those test scores. Like you must submit a test score to be considered for scholarships. Well, when you're talking about schools that cost 60 or $70,000, it might as well be a million. Right? Right. So, yeah. And I, The other two probably have seen other things that schools are doing, but that's just the one I really hope universities will continue post pandemic to adhere to is the test optional policy.
0: Yeah, I actually just learned today that um, in the state of Nevada, a graduation requirement is to take the ACT and all students as a junior are given that opportunity on a test day to take the ACT Uh, we don't have any more details yet as to whether there's going to be a replacement, but we did learn that that test is no longer going to be a graduation requirement in the state of Nevada. So I'm sure there'll be some other replacement, but there just isn't any information on that just yet. So uh, now kind of circling back a little bit to your session at the Dream Deferred, um, a lot lot of the things that we've talked about so far, focusing on Getting students into college, helping them learn the process of getting into college and uh, especially those in underserved populations. So um, predominantly educators are white. And uh, if they're like me, they work in schools that are majority underserved historical populations. So um, you made a lot of great points in your presentation and like kind of, I don't want to say tips and tricks because that just sounds so like simplistic, but There's a lot of things that you talked about in your presentation about what white educators can do to not just help students from underserved populations get to school, but just general promote success in school. And I would love for you each to kind of share a little bit from your presentation um, to share with our listeners a little bit more because, um, Heather, like you said in the very beginning, as a white educator, we have a lot to learn and a lot of work to do to help our students. And I would love to hear some more of those things, rehash some of those things that I had the privilege of hearing, but Ben and listeners did not. So, um, Charles, I think I'm going I'm to go to you first. Uh, I'm just kind of give some of your thoughts to start.
4: Yeah, I think the first thing that, that comes to my mind um, that we, we kind of reviewed is this idea of empathy. Um, I think, you know, they always say um, that there's the saying of sympathy. Uh, is putting on your shoes really empathy is putting on someone else's right and so I think that it is incredibly important um, to come into it with a lens of, of empathy. It's also crucial because uh, you mentioned Kyle yes the pre- predominant um, educators are white within especially within the K through 12 spaces I would argue even within higher ed right just in terms of a numbers game. Um, but even if we just make it more simple, we all have different lived experiences, right? And so um, in order to be the best, even for me, um, manager of the direct reports that I have, to be um, the best father, uh, to be the best son, it's going to take a different approach in each of those circumstances, in each of those relationships. And so um, a lot of what we stressed um, during the presentation Uh, is really taking an intentional approach to learning about uh, the population that you are supporting. Um, And so that can uh, mean a variety of different things. It can be understanding maybe some of the things that are going on within that community that might be um, stresses that they have outside of the classroom. Um, It might also be understanding the goals. We've talked a lot today, and I also wanna be careful for our listeners um, about sort of uh, the college going process and preparing students for college. It very well might not be uh, in their, I want to say not in their best interest, but it might not be in their minds to attend college for a myriad of reasons, right? And so being able to unearth the reasons behind that, right? Maybe there are some responsibilities that they have at home. Maybe they need to stay closer. Um, maybe getting a certification, um, in a a career, you know, I'm, I'm learning a lot even now about certifications for coding that students can get, and they'll make twice as much as I will make and not go to college at all. Right. And so maybe those are the resources that they need to be, um, sort of exposed to. Um, and so I think it's really understanding the population that you're serving through this lens of empathy. Um, and then the second thing I want to hear from other colleagues as well, um, is a, An understanding of your particular role in the funnel, if you will. Um, I know that it is my duty, my responsibility, I take it as my responsibility um, to not just help students uh, gain a University of Miami education, but no, it's actually to help them make an informed process about their access to higher education in general. I just happen to be a representative for the University of Miami. Um, And so I think we all play a different role in uh, the funnel of education, if it will, um, and sort of having a clear understanding of what that is and how your particular role in that funnel will help that student move along, hopefully um, within uh, that trajectory, whatever that may be for for them.
0: Awesome, thank thank you for that. Yeah, that's... uh... No, all very important. And, you know, and we have talked on this show several times about, um, uh, again, trying to tread softly here about how not every kid is cut for college. It may be for the variety of reasons you mentioned, but it also may be like maybe they're just a better hands-on kind of worker where welding or you know auto mechanic is a, is a better career choice for them. And like you said, I could send a kid right now to one of the trade unions here in Las Vegas, and they'll make almost as much money as me as a 17 year veteran teacher, just as an apprentice, you know, let alone before they even get their certifications. So, right. So, no, I, so I, I appreciate um, uh, as a college admissions uh, counselor kind of deal that you, you recognize that as well, because, you know, sometimes there is that kind of push on college, but I feel that's uh, changing a lot um, over the, the years. here. Well, and I think some kids, some kids need a little bit
1: of time. And I mean, you know, there's that discussion of the gap year and those kind of things. And that non-traditional, I mean, you know, my wife and I both had kids before we went to school. We were not on that track, but I mean that's there are some other options, but making sure kids have that, I think that's there are some options there should you choose to do that, I think that's super powerful
0: now Heather, um yeah you you probably have some different things that you may want to touch on um, in your point of view from uh, from the the presentation and the work that you you're doing with your colleagues here but the one word that stuck out to me, you, you mentioned this um, quite a while ago in our conversation here now, was relationships. And that's such a big piece of working with students, uh, regardless of background um, as well. So I, I have a feeling that you, you feel very strongly about that too.
3: I do, I think in the in the presentation, I think that was Reginald's piece to talk about. Um, but the relationship piece, I think that I talked about more, um, you're right, almost 80% of educators in public K-12 schools are white. And, you know, roughly 70% of all school counselors are white. So students of color and students from historically underserved populations don't see themselves in the adults guiding them. So, you know, like, they're like, do I can I trust them? Um, do they even know what, what, you know, they don't know what it's like to be me. Um, to Charles's point, everyone has a different lived experience. and so. I think asking good questions. Um, I think one of the things white educators can do is be quiet and listen um, and just really hear the stories. Um, We talked a lot in that about becoming an an ally. And so what that means to me is that um, I need to build sincere relationships with my peers, with my colleagues, um, with the students I serve To take the time to hear their stories and understand what's impacting them and how it's impacting them and find ways to amplify their voices, not to speak for them, but to amplify their voices and their stories with their permission, um, in conjunction with them, so that the greater, the, the greater school community, the greater community at large can hopefully really start to hear um, the things that are impacting our students because yeah there's a lot of systemic issues that they cannot control and neither can I but can we look for resources together can we find ways to make each day a, a little better a little less traumatic like whatever it is that's going on for that student Um, and for our colleagues. I think that's really important, right? So how many times do we expect our colleagues of color to do the work for us, you know? And so instead of, I attended a conference, the People of Color Conference a couple years ago, and I remember sitting there and um, one of the presenters was an African-American man, and he was one of the main, like, people of the conference. And I remember him saying, I think he was talking about after Brianna Taylor was murdered, none of his white colleagues came to him and said, "How are you doing? Are you okay today?" Like nobody talked to him and asked him. And so if you're gonna be an ally, you really have to invest in making sure your colleagues of color aren't overtaxed, um, that they are supported and that you check in with them earnestly and say how are you today or when you see things happen that you stand up and say you know what i just saw didn't seem right to me um so many times we just sit back and one of the main things that we talked about in the session was as a white person i have the privilege of picking up the cause and putting it back down but if i'm a person of color i can't ever put it back down. And so the weight of always, you know, the backpack analogy of always carrying that backpack that has 5,000 bricks in it. Like I can take my backpack off sometimes if I want. And we need to remember that and, and support um, our neighbors, our, you know, our friends of color in ways that go far beyond just showing up for one protest and then going home.
0: Well said. Very, very much appreciated uh, your thoughts there. So um, now, now Reginald, how about you? What, um, what are your thoughts that you would like to share in, in relation to things that maybe your colleagues said, or maybe something else that, that you touch on in your presentation?
2: Yeah. um, And it's interesting because I feel like in some respects, um, and I think I actually had people do this in the context of the, 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 um, of the presentation that we made was, you know, to close their eyes and to think about what their favorite teacher, their favorite mentor, their favorite somebody who they work with in some respect or another. And in seeing that person, you know, and realizing clearly, I think the, the kinds or levels of contributions that they've made, you know, and poured into your life, are those the same contributions that you're pouring into, not just uh, students who look like you, but to, into, into all students. Um, I've been in the, and I'll say, I guess I'll say it this way. I've been in the privileged seat to help literally thousands of students, whether it's through the admissions process, whether it was their transition in one respect or another, or even from orientation to graduation. I don't remember being asked only to help just the black students. I don't remember being asked only to help or to seek and find every white student. What I what I realized in the context of that comment is that help really knows no help or support really knows no color. You know, and so in 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 light of that, I mean, I can tell you, and it's a short anecdote, but it but I think it makes a lot of sense. My last day at work at. Ball State University. Before I left to go to 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 another school, a young lady came into my office. Who young young white girl? She was from uh, like a small town or rural Indiana, uh, in one respect or another. Wanted to be a speech pathologist and had kind of gone to the wall and couldn't couldn't go any further. It was like I need I need help. I need to trying to get into school and school's about to start in a few weeks or whatever the case may be and I remember going to bat for her as it turned out the my last bit of business at at Ball State was in fact for the student to be a uh, speech pathologist she, I think she came in on probation but she you know did what needed to be done two moves later when I worked in Pennsylvania I got a letter from someone that I didn't know was from and it ended up being, ironically enough, a letter from her mother, this young lady who I helped four years before. And she basically just explained, I wish I, I, I didn't keep the letter, or if I did, I'm not sure where it is now, but I wish I kept the letter because she talked about you know, my going to bat for her, her helping, helping her out in whatever the case may be. She's ironically enough now, I think a speech pathologist in California you know, met her husband, family, the whole nine. None of those things would have happened had it not been for, at least I'll say in this respect, the calculated risk that I made in going to bat for that student. How many other students, how many other processes or situations are there out there like that where all it took was just that one person to say or that one person to, to do just a little more, a little extra, to make sure someone needed needed to be and needed to be where they needed to be and do what they needed to do, um, a lot of times someone doing that for you and feeling that way feels like you know that kid is going to you know go through a brick wall, um, not just for themselves but for all the people who support them. And I, so I think the the nature of what Charles said and what Heather said with the um, the connection and the empathy. I mean, if you marry those two things together, that's that's what that's I mean that's what coaching is set a goal become accountable and just watch them do it and to whatever extent as warranted support um what the what that success looks like
0: that's a beautiful story in its own regard but it it touches me more being my wife is a speech pathologist and uh the work that she did in undergrad and then not being able to get into grad school right away and finally, you know, 13 years after graduating with her bachelor's in speech path, being able to go to the University of Nevada to pursue that master's degree and then where we're at now. And again, and and because somebody in an admissions office or in a or a professor at a university saw the work she was doing, went to bat for her essentially is what it boiled down to. So so that whole story, like I said Beautiful to begin with, but that one, that one hit right here. So um, so that, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that. That's a great, great story right there. So now um, at this point, um, I would love if you have a way for people to connect with you, whether that's a Twitter account yeah. or a LinkedIn or something, um, any way that people can connect with you more um, so they can continue these conversations and, and really build that allyship that we, we spoke a little bit of as well. So uh, uh, Reginald, I'll start with you. Is there is there a way that
2: people can connect with you? Yeah, there is. So I'm I'm on uh, Facebook as uh, Reginald Ryder. I'm on LinkedIn as Reginald Ryder, uh, m.ed period. Uh, let's see. Um, I have a Instagram account. It's R-R-Y-D-E-R-4-T-L-C. So it's basically the uh, uh, my name and the acronym for Thriving Life Coaching. Um, or the number four, I should say. Uh, also, um, my own website. My own website is uh, reginalbrider.com. And uh, the book that I talked about before, Passing the Baton, A Guide Memoir of College Success, right. is uh, there. Uh, if you're interested in individual coaching, and or your organization's interested in uh, my you know, presenting or um, offering you know, some information to you as well, uh, you can definitely be in contact with me that way. I'm in the process right now of uh, developing a workbook that's gonna go in tandem with the, um, with the book so that the students have essentially an, a narrative of kind of hearing of what success looks like, but then a template for them to be able to use for themselves uh, as well. So hopefully if all goes as planned, knock on wood, that I'll have that ready by, uh, by around the fall. So uh, stay tuned, but uh, thank you.
1: Awesome, we'll make sure to put that in the notes. So Heather, how can people connect with you? And, and I'm excited about that free curriculum too. So share with us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So ninth grade is done, 10th grade is almost done. Um, 11th and 12th grade will be released over the summer. Um, I got to finish my grading first before I do anything else with that. So, there's <laughs> that um, whole work thing, right? <laughs> that work thing, dang it. Um, but so, I, with that, I will have more social media presence. Everyone keeps telling me that's really important. I, yeah, so I'm working on that. But I am on Facebook and I am on um, LinkedIn, Heather Case. Um, If you want information about the curriculum, my website is summiteducationconsulting.com. And the best way to catch me if you want to talk to me further would be to email me at heather at summiteducationconsulting.com. I know it's kind of long, but it is what it is.
0: Perfect. Well, I definitely throw that in the show notes as well. And then uh, last but not least, Charles, how can people connect with you, sir?
4: Yes. So I am, uh, I guess you could say, on a prolonged social media hiatus. So um, you can email me, uh, charles.camack, my last name, double M's, A-C-K, um, at yahoo.com. Um, I'm also on Strava, as I mentioned earlier, so if you want to uh, have some motivation there, um, Charles Cammack as well.
2: Yeah, Kyle, and one it, more thing. I'm oh, oh, sorry, I did to catch you off. Go ahead, Heather, I'll, I'll, go ahead.
3: I was just going to say, you also can Google, they're still off there, right, Charles? Charles made all these awesome videos called Chats with Charles, and they oh. were for the you, but they also, I, use them when I, cause I volunteer for some CBOs. I use them in the CBOs all the time. And to be honest, that was a little bit of the idea for writing this whole curriculum, you know, cause all of my stuff is videos and they're really short little videos right. for short attention spans for high school students. But mm-hmm. look them up. He does an awesome job. They're super fun. That's another way to find Charles. <laughs>
4: That is true. Uh, yeah, so I that those videos can be found on our uh, UM, at UM admission um, YouTube page, uh, and it basically walks you through the application process um, for UM. But actually, I would say 90% of the videos actually can apply kind of generally to uh, the college admissions process. Great.
0: And then Reginald, you had one last thing you wanted yeah, to add? One
2: last thing. Yeah, I was just going to say, in, uh, going to the reg- in, the, in going to the website at uh, reginaldwriter.com, I offer um, families or uh, organizations a free 15-minute consultation just to tell me what's going on, to figure out what, what, where their void is, and where my, where we can connect, and uh, and go from there as well. So if that helps uh, people on the way, again, it's a 15-minute consultation. It'll probably be a little bit longer just because <laughs> I'm sure by the time we ask questions and find out more about what's going on and what's happening. Um, but it's at least a start and uh, good inertia. Awesome. Perfect. So now, so
0: one last thing, um, um, Charles, or excuse me, Reginald, you mentioned that you're a Blue Moon fan, but um, Charles and Heather, we actually did not yeah. get um, favorite beers or other drinks or, or, drinks drinks or, or anything. Yeah, So, so Heather, go-to drink. What do you do?
3: well i also have to comment that i'm on peloton and not whatever that other thing is i don't know like whatever so um
2: it's like we me- go outside
3: <laughs> okay so but the thing is that it's not for winter it's for summer here because like i'm in the middle of a desert you know and it's 110 for like yes. four months so no my peloton gets right a lot now. of
0: work in the summer in vegas too so
3: yeah sure, for sure yeah, yeah. um i'm Really, a beer drinker, if I'm going to be real, I think it kind of looks like human waste. So, I don't (laughs) drink beer. Um, They didn't drink enough
2: water. That's why it looks like that. That's that's bad. (laughs) bad.
3: (laughs) No, there's some pale ones, too. So, you know, it just all looks like yee. So, yeah, no, whiskey sour is probably my, like, that's the safe one that you can get, like, everywhere, right? Everybody yep. has whiskey sours. Sometimes funny. the whiskey's that, better than others, though. That's funny you say that,
1: because Kyle and I have talked long conversations about a side podcast about our love of whiskey.
3: So that's a <laughs> to
0: So I fit anymore. in here
3: today, then. Yeah,
0: yeah you're good. So um, I don't do the sours as much because, you know, those can get a little acidic, but uh, you put an old-fashioned in front of me. Well, we can have a conversation. So. There it is. And then, Charles, how about you, right, sir? Charles.
4: Yes. I mean, I hate to disappoint. I am not um, necessarily a drinker at all, but my go-to drink for sure. And actually what I'll probably go have right now is Martinelli's apple juice. The only sort of uh yeah it's in that little unique jug If those of you who are familiar with that but yeah that is Indeed. my, my no and we do not we discriminate what people drink about. or don't drink on
0: this show so <laughs> we've had people come on here uh, drinking dasani water so we uh true. no we do not discriminate so but uh well i cannot even begin yes. to exalt enough thanks for the three of you joining yeah. us here today this has been absolutely incredible
1: well, and, I, and you guys, this is such a deep topic, and I'd and i and I'd like to thank you for your work, because I think this is something that really um, that needs to be out there to, to help support all educators with making sure that we're helping all students access, um, you know, higher ed, should that be their choice. So thank you for that.
2: Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah we really I really enjoyed the conversation. This was fun. This is fun. You guys are great. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Thank and you. thank you for the work you're doing just to continue to amplify the message yes. of supporting students, regardless of what their lived experience is.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Absolutely.
2: Uh, uh, I, I want to thank you, uh, especially and specifically, because a lot of times, and I'll be honest with you, you know, people have said, you know, listen, you know, come to my podcast or come do this right. or come do that. And you're like, okay. And then it's like, wow, what was that guy's name again? I don't remember who he was. He, he said he was going to get in cuts with me in like two weeks and he, said, he never did. And you not only did, but you were able to work and accommodate our schedule for uh, us all to be together. So um, clearly we made a, we may have made an impact on you, but you clearly yeah. have made an impact on all of us. Yeah.
0: No, I appreciate that. Uh, again, uh, being able to work this out, because like I said, uh, going to your session, it was an incredible session. I'm like, this is a conversation that needs to be deeper. And I think more yes. people need to see it or hear it. Sure. So uh, no. So again, thank you so very much and then listeners we want you to keep this conversation going we want you to share your thoughts on today's topic so you can do that by emailing us at info at beer edupodcast.com you can tweet us at beer edu pod uh, make sure you're using hashtag beer EDU pod when you do that you can hit us up on our Facebook page at beer edu podcast it's all one word you can follow us on instagram at beer EDU pod that's more of the fun one though where we're posting beers that we're drinking yep Um, You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at bit.ly slash beer edu YouTube, where you can watch our episodes as they are being recorded and interact with us. And then please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast so more can find the show and connect with us. And then Ben, if you would like to be a guest on the beer edu podcast, what do you have to do?
1: So just go to beeredupodcast.com. You click on that contact and subscription info link, and then you just complete that guest form. We'll get you in the queue. We want to hear from you. We want to talk about what you're passionate about in education. And then we would be remiss if we didn't thank some people who are helping out the Beer Edu Podcast, First of which being School Rubric. They feature the Beer Edu Podcast. So the mission of School Rubric is to help schools, educators, parents, and students tell their stories so that stakeholders can make the best choices about enrollment and staffing. So go to schoolrubric.org, find more great content from so many great educators all over the world. And then we are also very lucky to be part of the Codebreaker podcast network. So if you go to codebreakeredu.com, you can find so many amazing podcasts, Teachers Talking Teaching, Student-Centered World, STEM Every Day, Teachers on Fire, My EdTech Life, and the BDU Podcast. So we're part of that. We want to thank them. And now is the part where, Kyle, you have something to learn about. So Charles, Heather, and Reginald, we'd love for you to stay a little bit. Kyle, Kyle's going to teach us something now. So I'm curious what you got, Kyle.
0: Yeah. So but real quick before we do speaking of school rubric, uh, I yeah. do have a quick shameless plug. Um uh, school rubric approached me a while back about writing for their global education insights magazine Ooh. online and um the focus of the issue was teacher retention and um like burnout and whatnot so i wrote an article Whoa. for them so um if you go to schoolrubric.org right now and search for the global education insights magazine cool. on their website uh, i do have an article that is in this month's issue here so Um, It it is about teacher retention. It's about teacher burnout. It is about teachers just leaving in droves and kind of my thoughts as to why that's happening right now. And, um, you know, and there are some maybe (sighs) some some people may find some of the topics a little (laughs) controversial. So uh, there are there's an acronym that some people are uh, making illegal, quote unquote, in some states with the letter C. R&T in it that I mentioned in that article that uh, has part of the reason why many people may be leaving right now. So um, so yeah. I will leave that to your imagination and just yeah. ask that you go and read that article. So, But yes, this is where we are going to learn a little bit. Yep. And Ben, you and I talked on a recent episode about how it's been a little bit harder coming up with topics and maybe we need yes. to kind of go back and rehash them. So that's what we're going to do today. We're Perfect. going to rehash back from like episode one. Oh, so, wow. and, that, time yeah, to- and that is ABV and IBU and what yes. those things are. So um, you've, if you've listened to the show ever, you, you hear Ben and I talk about this all the time, but if you haven't listened to that very first episode from way back when, uh, you may not know what ABV and IBU are. So we're just going to do a quick little rehash of that. Yep. So ABV stands for alcohol by volume. So this measures the percentage of alcohol in a beer or other alcoholic drink like a wine or any other spirit. So, and the way this is measured is It's the amount of milliliters of alcohol in 100 milliliters of a liquid at 20 degrees Celsius or 68 Fahrenheit for Americans, because we cannot do Celsius in this country, apparently. So so if you've got three and a half milliliters of alcohol in 100 milliliters of water or other liquid, you're talking about three and a half percent ABV at that point. So now when you're talking beer, normally you're talking four to six percent ABV. Mm -hmm. That's typical. But You've got styles that are higher or lower. So lambics that Ben, you and I have talked about how much we love yep. our lambics; those are like two and a half percent usually. Is, yeah. So, but you can start getting into imperial stouts so that can be in the high teens. Uh, one of my local breweries here in Las Vegas they have a seventeen percent imperial stout right cool. now. So that one, you drink one of those and you're already buzzing. A little that's bit. it. That's so, all you need. <laughs> yep, that's that. Yeah, it's a delicious beer, but yeah, you don't need more than one. Oh, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, so. Uh, Now, IBU, on the other hand, the other one that you may hear us say, this stands for International Bitterness Units, and this is how you measure the bitterness that beer has from the hops. Now, Mm -hmm. it's not based on your perceived bitterness, because uh, some people that are not beer drinkers, they might drink a Keystone Light and think that's the most bitter thing they've ever tasted, whereas you and I, Ben, we could drink a 100 IBU uh, IPA, and we're like, hey, that wasn't that bad. What are you talking about? So. Now, what it is, it's based not on the perceived bitterness, but the amount of acid that the hops gives the beer is how they measure that. So Mm -hmm. now typically the scale goes from zero to 100, but you are starting to see beers that are going higher. Like I've seen 120 IBU IPAs at this point. So those are going to be ones that probably put a little hair on your back if you drink that one. Those are going to be some bitter beers. I've never seen one that high. So that's interesting. I would say the most common one that's at at 100 for sure is Sierra Nevada's Hoptimum, their their triple IPA. So yep. now your lower IBU styles tend to be like your Lambics we mentioned, wheat beers, American lagers. Mm -hmm. Um, You get your mid-range ones that are like your pale ales, your porters, Mm -hmm. uh, pilsners, and then your English style bitters are the Mm -hmm. mid-range ones. You start getting into the high range ones with your stouts, your IPAs, and your barley wines. So the higher the number, the more intense the hop character is yep. going to be in those. So, uh, so again, if you hadn't heard that first episode and was kind of wondering, what are we talking about? Here's your refresher there right here. So, hopefully, that will hold you over for a little while. Awesome. So, yeah,
1: we're going to have to revisit some of those other ones we have.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, because there's ones. I mean, we've done the research on it. But even now, I'm like, wait, what was that one again? Yep. I, I'm going to need to rehash a few of them myself. So because There it is. 127 episodes. We've done a lot to learn about seconds so Kyle Kyle
1: does all the research let's just be honest
0: (laughs) but in fairness Ben you do all the food pairing ones so that's true you're the food I like to
1: eat so what am I saying yeah
0: (laughs) well I think 127 is about wrapped up my friend
1: this is a wrap thanks again Charles Heather and Reginald for being here and 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 we really appreciate getting the chance to talk to you
2: great thank Thank you you so so much
0: And then listeners, as always, we thank you. And until next time, may the Malts and the Hops be with you. Right on.